Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Here we take the documentaries and TV shows from our channel and turn them into podcasts. This week we're bringing you part two of one of our favorite documentaries called Behind Closed Doors, a deep dive into the secret family feuds behind Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. If you missed it, you can find it on our feed. We're jumping right back into the tensions between Philip and the Queen Mother, who is refusing to leave Buckingham Palace. The voice of the documentary is actor Ben Kaplan, and it features expert voices, including Sarah Bradford, author of Elizabeth, a biography of Her Majesty the Queen, and author of Our Own Dear Queen, Piers Brenton. The Queen Mother was still living in Buckingham Palace, although convention demanded she move out to make way for her daughter. When Cecil Beaton visited her, he wrote that he suspected the heating had been turned off to try and freeze her out. Some of the higher-up servants of the palace couldn't think why the Queen Mother stayed on here so long. When I passed by the Queen Mother's old rooms, I noticed that the walls were bare, the furniture had been taken away, and the rooms were below freezing. But it wasn't just her home she was hanging on to, and there to help was her ally, Winston Churchill. She was encouraged by Churchill to continue in public life, and actually she was quite pleased to do that. So she resumed the royal life, but had to play second fiddle, obviously, to her own daughter. Traditionally, a dowager queen would retire into the shadows, but this wasn't the case for the 52-year-old queen mother. Symbolically, Elizabeth ordered a dispatch box to be made for her, and even made her a councillor of state, the first dowager queen in British history to become one. Although Philip was boxed in by the forces of tradition, he could see one way of making an impact on the House of Windsor. Perhaps the dynasty could have a new name, his name. There were issues here, of course. What was his family name? Uh, his family name uh, ended in the word Glücksburg. Well, it was quite complicated, and I don't think anyone thought he was going to be called Glücksburg. He changed his name to Mountbatten when he became engaged to the Queen. Uh, so was, he going to, was the royal house to be called Mountbatten? It was very important to his uncle, Lord Mountbatten, who saw himself as a, as a, as a sort of kingmaker, as a power behind the throne, and it mattered a lot to him that um, he should be in some way associated with a royal house which included the word Mountbatten. Shortly after Elizabeth's succession, Mountbatten boasted at a dinner party that the House of Mountbatten now ruled. This got back to the Queen Mother and the Queen, 
and Churchill, all of whom were horrified. I think I know exactly what the Queen Mother thought about Lord Mountbatten. I think I know pretty much what Lord Mountbatten thought about the Queen Mother. I think there was what you call a want of sympathy between the two of them and a considerable distrust on her part. Philip threw himself into the campaign to alter the family name with a brisk naval efficiency. When Prince Philip submitted a memo to the cabinet arguing in a very rational and moderate way that perhaps the royal family's name should now change from Windsor to Mountbatten, the cabinet unanimously, with the support of the rest of the royal family, the cabinet unanimously decided to keep the name of Windsor. And Prince Philip, I think he was upset about that because, um, you know, that, that was about the, the only sort of dynastic contribution that he could make. That did infuriate him. He wasn't hung up on the name Mountbatten. I think it annoys him when people think he was obsessed that the family should be called Mountbatten. It was the principle that he was not able to hand on to his children his family name. The stakes for Philip were high. A name change would have acknowledged his status. But on the 9th of April, 1952, the Queen, siding with her family and advisers, signed a royal proclamation stating her descendants will be called Windsor. Philip allegedly responded to the news. I'm just a bloody amoeba. I'm the only man in the country not allowed to give his name to his children. He did feel in some ways emasculated by this, infuriated, angered, antagonized. And I think it must have been difficult for the Queen in some ways because of not wanting to hurt her husband. You know, to an extent, he was pushed on to one side. So I think that from the point of view of actually maintaining you know, good marital relations, it was quite important that Prince Philip should be seen to have a, a job. Recognising Philip's mounting frustration, she hoped to compensate him in some ways by giving him complete control over their children's education and over the royal estates. But in a more public gesture, Elizabeth also made Philip head of the coronation committee. The coronation was to be the biggest royal event of the 20th century. And Philip threw himself into the organization with his characteristic gusto. There were lots of Commonwealth troops coming to the United Kingdom. They were stationed all over the country. And the Duke of Edinburgh, as chairman of the commission, thought that he should go and visit them all. Troops from around the empire, around the Commonwealth. So he looked at the logistics. He did this with his own private secretary, uh, a guy called Mike Parker. The pair of them sat down with some maps, worked out where everybody was, decided that the best way to do this would be by helicopter. That's the way it should be done, dynamically. They got a helicopter from the Royal Navy. Philip was in the Royal Navy. They borrowed this helicopter, and off they went to visit all these troops. Well, as the Duke of Edinburgh said to me, it caused quite a ruckus. And Churchill was furious, because as far as he was concerned, you know, one travelled on horseback, basically, and he'd taken part in the last cavalry charge in British history. And helicopters were the invention of the devil. And he actually said to Prince Philip, or said to his query, is Prince Philip trying to kill off the entire royal family? What's he doing? You know, I don't want him travelling about in helicopters. There was a lot of petty-fogging bureaucracy. He had not sought the necessary permissions to do this. He just got on and done it. And his secretary, Mike Parker, was hauled in to 10 Downing Street and wrapped over the knuckles, given a severe dressing down by the Prime Minister himself. So the chairman of the Coronation Commission was told, in no uncertain terms, you've got to do it our way, not your way. To make it worse, 
it became clear that Philip had no real power at all. They did their best to involve Prince Philip, but the real power wasn't in his hands. The real power was in the hands of his deputy chairman, the Duke of Norfolk, chief butler of all England, the man who traditionally runs these kinds of affairs. But the modern world couldn't be totally excluded. Television was in its infancy. This new medium had never been a factor in previous coronations. Would it be welcomed or rejected by the royals? In the early days of post-war television, we used to televise any royal occasion that we possibly could. And so when the coronation, uh, that, that was clearly going to be the most wonderful occasion of all if we could get permission to televise it. Prince Philip, with an influence from Baron, I think, uh, was all for it. And this was modernising, you know, we're changing from old-type royalty to a new-type royalty. This was the age of television, and he would undoubtedly have been wholly in favour of the televising of the coronation. But it was the Queen who had to be persuaded. And once again, Philip was out on a limb. The Queen, I believe, wasn't very keen on having it televised because it was a very solemn, it was a religious thing, a service, you know. The Queen was uneasy with cameras. She couldn't unbend, she was nervous, she was not spontaneous. But as ever, it wasn't only the Queen's decision. The Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, was also opposed to allowing television cameras in the Abbey. He didn't want the mystique of the monarchy to be overexposed. Churchill was very against it. He said a religious ceremony should not become a theatrical performance. The BBC request was refused by the Duke of Norfolk, the Coronation Committee and the Cabinet. There was a good deal of apprehension uh, and um, almost a blank refusal. I think on the grounds of additional lighting and the strain that it would have, extra strain that it would impose upon a young queen uh, during the service. The problem about televising the royals is that, as Sir Alan Lassells, the private secretary to the queen, kept insisting, you were letting daylight in upon the magic. You were revealing what was going on behind the scenes. You were making a you were creating, perhaps, what came to be known as the royal soap opera. It just went on week after week. Every time they said no, we tried to find a reason why they should have said yes. For the forces of tradition, it wasn't just a case of who would watch the coronation, but what it would look like. The Queen Mother was making sure that it would reflect the look that she had created as Queen. Princess Elizabeth had already gone and had a wonderful wedding dress created for her by Hartnell in 1947. And so when it came to a grand gown, which was going to be embroidered again, um, the coronation dress was obviously going to be commissioned that Mr Hartnell would receive. The Queen really is not that interested in clothes, not like her mother who loved clothes for clothes' sake. The Queen looks upon all her clothes as a sort of working wardrobe to carry out the duties for which she is the monarch. Elizabeth's disinterest in clothes gave the Queen Mother the opportunity to make her mark, as Hartnell soon discovered on a trip to Sandringham. To his surprise and rather shocked, he got there and he found both the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret there, eagerly waiting to see what he was going to produce, uh, which he found slightly 
uh, unnerving, but uh, they were very enthusiastic and obviously ordered their gowns from him too. Hartnell would not only be designing the coronation robe, for the first time a coronation would have a coordinated look, and the Queen Mother would also make sure she influenced who would be wearing some of these beautiful clothes, including the maids of honour. My parents had known the Queen Mother. In fact, my father knew the Queen Mother when he was a young man and she was a young girl in Scotland. And so he'd known her for a very long time. And they both knew the late King and Queen Mother. And, and I was the right age. And um, I think that's it's what I call accident of birth. She'd been a great friend of my parents. And my father had been a, a query to the Duke of York before the war. Um, so, and we were also chosen the way we looked, our figures, and we were very carefully graded. Two very tall girls at the back, Rosie Spencer Churchill and Moira Hamilton. The coronation was to be a grand performance, rehearsed to perfection. We were drilled by the Duke of Norfolk. Um, like soldiers, we were. Every movement was worked out in advance. We used to go to the Abbey quite often, actually, and rehearse. But we never rehearsed with the Queen, except at Buckingham Palace when she wore a sheet and we sort of wandered up and down behind her. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We've just learned more about the preparations leading up to the Queen's coronation and what the rehearsals were like. As coronation day drew closer, the rehearsals became more urgent. The Queen Mother's camp was winning hands down. But there was increasing concern about how the event would be presented to the wider world. For Philip, this was an opportunity. The BBC was still fighting to get their cameras in. 
and who would immortalize the day in photographs? The Queen Mother's favorite, the Queenly Beaton, or Philip's friend, the playful socialite, Baron? Prince Philip wanted Baron, his partner from his nights out in Soho, to take the coronation photographs. Baron would have been a natural person to take the coronation pictures, but um, Prince Philip was only the chairman of the coronation commission. He was not Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. The Queen Mother had a different idea. She was determined that the Hartnell beaten magic that had served her so well would also work for her daughter. We did three sessions with the Queen Mother that I remember. One was in the garden and uh, in Buckingham Palace, and then one was in, I think, the green room. And then it was in the green room that uh, he had a long chat with the uh, Queen Mother. I remember him saying to the Queen Mother that he'd very much like to photograph the Queen. And she said yes, she thought that it would be possible. I think she was pretty good at getting her own way when she wanted to, if she felt it was important. Beaton himself recalled his relief in his diary. Baron, a most unexpected friend of Prince Philip's, has been taking all the recent pictures. So the call saying the Queen wanted me to do her personal coronation pictures comes as an enormous relief. I also had a short opportunity to thank the Queen Mother for what I am sure must have been her help in bringing about this coup for me. She laughed knowingly with one finger high in the air. It was another victory for the Queen Mother, maybe now secure in her new position. Just weeks before the coronation, she finally left Buckingham Palace for her newly decorated home at Clarence House. At last, Philip could be master of his own home. There was also still an opportunity to throw a little 20th century light onto the ancient coronation ritual. The BBC decided to take a chance on public opinion. What happened was that the BBC leaked the fact that this cabal of the establishment had decided not to televise. And then there was a media storm. I'm afraid we did adopt a bit of spin because if ever we could leak any information that we thought was in our favour, then we'd try and get it into the press, hoping that the government and the palace would read it. And we had a, a very good friend in George Campy because every time we got a no, he'd come out with a great big article saying, it seems that they're not going to allow television in the Abbey and they should. The spin had worked. In a public opinion poll, 78% voted in favour of televising the day. It clearly wasn't just Philip who wanted to propel the royal family into the 20th century. And eventually a telephone call came, yes, you have permission. And from that moment on, it was wonderful. This time, Philip's view chimed with popular opinion. At last, the forces of tradition had to back down. Television would give unprecedented live access to the ceremony. Any mistakes would be witnessed by millions. The mystery of the monarchy had never been so exposed. On the 2nd of June, 1953, after 16 months of preparation, Coronation Day finally arrived. The nation was in a receptive mood, and some were even prepared to embrace a bizarre request. At that stage, monarchy had become a kind of state religion, really. It had become a form of Shintoism. Um, and I think this is best illustrated by the order that went out to 
naval ratings in the RNVR who were going to line the route. Um, and the order went out to them that they should refrain from alcohol and sexual intercourse for at least 48 hours before they lined the route of the procession, because otherwise they might be seen to contaminate the royal juju. The lavish ceremony and the charisma of the beautiful young queen worked its magic. On the day, Elizabeth could put the wrangles of the last 16 months behind her. Finally, it was her moment. She was very cool, very calm, and she looked so young and so vulnerable, and it was a very solemn moment. And um, I could feel a lump coming in my throat at that time. I thought, goodness, what responsibility the rest of her life. Philip, Duke of Edinburgh on that day, was merely an attendant lord. He was the most significant attendant lord, but that's what he was. He did not take part in the coronation. The queen arrived with him, but she processed alone. She was crowned alone. It was her day, her moment. The queen mother too was watching her daughter's flawless performance from a front row seat. I think the Queen Mother must have very mixed feelings because I, she was very, very sad when the King died. I mean, you know, they had such a wonderful married life together. And uh, on the other hand, I think she was enormously proud, obviously, of the Queen, uh, you know, uh, who, who was magnificent and has been magnificent ever since. Although Philip was technically just another of the Queen's subjects, he was at least the first among equals during the ceremony. He took his place in front of the peers with the Duke of Gloucester and the Duke of Kent as the three royal dukes, and each, in turn, paid homage to the Queen, promising to be liege man of life and limb and so forth, which was, in a sense, to, I suppose, mark you know, his particular role. Millions of viewers were entranced by the spectacle, unaware that behind the scenes, some family tensions continued. When they returned to the palace for the official photographs, Philip was no longer on his best behavior. He was a bit tetchy, but he wasn't rude or anything like that. You know, just, he just wanted to get on with the job. Thought, uh, come on, hurry up, let's get on with it and finish and go. Where Cecil Beaton was sort of, you know, in a rather stew, actually, sort of hopping up and down. And uh, we were all arranged. And the Duke of Edinburgh, um, I think he was an amateur photographer anyway. He kept on sort of saying, no, you've got to be there. And in the end, Cecil Beaton said, look, I'm taking the photographs. You know, I think I'd better get on with it. Beaton recorded the atmosphere in his diary. The Duke of Edinburgh stood by making wry jokes. His lips pursed in a smile that put the fear of God into me. I believe he doesn't approve or like me. Perhaps he was disappointed that his friend Baron wasn't doing this job today. Overall, the coronation had been a stunning success for the traditionalists. The society diarist Chips Channon wrote, What a day for England and the traditional forces of the world. Shall we ever see the like again? Just as Philip had hoped, an ancient ritual had been given new life by television. The nation was entranced by the spectacle, and the following day it would be broadcast around the world. Paradoxically, the people got a better view than, than the knobs did, um, because the, the ceremony was shown on television. It was a, a commercial that went on all day, which 27 million people saw, 10 million of them who had never seen television before in their lives. It was the most extraordinary plug for the monarchical system that had ever occurred.
I think the Queen and Prince Philip were absolutely right to let the cameras in. It made the monarchy seem to be at once the protector of tradition, history, custom, and at the same time a symbol of progress, dynamism, vitality. That almost impossible juggling act that the monarchy has always had to do to embody the nation's past, present and future. But this nod to modernity had an impact that no one in 1953 could ever have foreseen. The media would from now on record not just the triumphs of the royal family, but also its trials. With hindsight, it was a huge mistake. Because as Churchill predicted, once you let the mass media in to this very ancient and actually religious ceremony, you're never going to get rid of the mass media. And for Philip personally, there was another symbolic victory. Almost a decade after the coronation, the snubber with the family name was reversed. Finally, in 1960, an ordering council decreed that some of those descendants, but not the heirs of Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, should hold the surname Mountbatten-Windsor. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for the Queen's coronation behind closed doors. We're back next week with another two-parter, this one on the mysterious East German Romeo spies. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.